Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Adam Farbiars and Lauren Sweeney, co-founders of Deliver Zero. Deliver Zero is like Uber Eats and Grubhub, except designed around reusable containers. Or if you've ever used any of these food delivery and takeout apps before, one of the big problems is the single-use waste. Right, you get these forks, knives, spoons, containers. You eat your food and then you throw it all the way. And instead, Deliver Zero couriers come to you with your food in a reusable container. And then on your next order, a courier returns that takeout container back into the supply chain. Or you can just drop it off at any of their partner locations and it'll get recycled back into that supply chain. And so in the episode, Adam Lore and I will discuss what exactly inspired the idea behind Deliver Zero? Bootstrapping the website and the marketplace from zero to one. How exactly Deliver Zero works from couriers dropping off your food to the reusables being reintegrated back with the partner restaurants. And finally, what the moonshot opportunity looks like for a company like Deliver Zero. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Adam Farbiars and Lauren Sweeney, co-founders of Deliver Zero. Adam and Lauren, welcome to the show. Hey, Peter. How are y'all? I am very excited for this episode. Let's run through the basics. What is Deliver Zero? Deliver Zero is an environmentally sustainable food ordering platform. It is a platform that's like Grubhub or Seamless or Caviar or whatever, any of those, with a big twist. So you order your food, you find a restaurant, you order your food but the food shows up in reusable packaging. Of course, the packaging is recyclable, but it is also reusable. That is to say, it can be thrown in a dishwasher like a regular dish and washed and reused repeatedly again and again. Got it. And before we jump into how it works, starting the marketplace, let's rewind to both of your backgrounds. Adam, stalking your LinkedIn, I saw that you've been a practicing lawyer in the law field for years. So maybe just help us connect the dots. What were you both doing before Deliver Zero? And and how did both of your paths cross? I can start. Lauren, do you want to start? You can start. Yeah, and then okay. and I'll jump in. So I, I should say that you look at my resume, Peter, and I guess it looks like I've, I practiced law for a long time. But Throughout the whole time of practicing law, I've been a weirdo up and down, <laughs> yearning to do other things and actually doing other things on the side with my creative self. So yeah, I graduated law school 10 years ago, actually. And I practiced law as full-time as my day job for eight years, which is good. I like practicing law. It's fine. It's grueling and it's tough, but I liked it. But I always just knew that I wanted to do something different. It wasn't like I knew I was going to work on environmental problems. I just knew I had something in my soul that was just different and independent. I spent a lot of time doing, actually, I did a lot of art in college. And I still, I continue to do like this sort of art publishing gig on the side where I publish strange art projects. I made this beautiful advent calendar. I made this beautiful illustrated deck of playing cards. I made this insane, long, conceptual drawing that sort of doubles as a coloring book. 
and I publish these things and I have a website actually that exists to this day where I make these things. So I mentioned that only because I've always been doing weird things on the side as sort of small projects, not as something that is good, was fully occupying me. And then a couple of years ago, with the support of my family, because it's hard to do this without the blessing of the people around you, I was like, I'm going to do something really big in the food space and I'm going to really hang it up in the law for probably for good. So then I just set out on this journey and it took, took a while to actually come up with Deliver Zero and, and refine this idea. We've been in business for a year, but obviously there's more than a year that, that behind the business. So it was just really a personal drive to do something big and different. And I knew I wanted to do it in food. I had waited tables out of college and I just loved working in like the New York City restaurant. And frankly, when I quit my law job, my father said to me, um, Adam, you are forbidden from starting a restaurant. So this was like the next best thing. Um, and even though I'm 40, almost 40 years old, your dad's advice uh, matters and looms large. So here we are with Deliver Zero. That's a little bit of my story. That's amazing. And uh, Lauren, I want to piggyback to you as well. What were you doing before Deliver Zero? And then how did you ultimately cross paths with the weirdo Adam post-law? And, and how did you guys ultimately land on Deliver Zero as your first work into the world of sustainability? Yeah, so I'll share a bit about my background and then share the story of how Adam and I crossed paths. So way back in my early 20s, I worked in a little health food store for just under a year. But that's where I was introduced to some sustainability around food. I was vegan for a while. At the store, we would save yogurt containers and use them to store food prep. If I chopped up carrots, I'd put them in a yogurt container that we'd washed. And it just made so much sense to me and there was so much joy in it. I never understood how that experience and the values I developed there could one day translate into into this and into growing Deliver Zero and having this passion that was a personal passion that I've now translated in my work in the startup world. So more recently, I'd been working in startups, started off consulting for startups after I was director of a conference called M2 Moms, the Marketing to Moms Conference. I was also executive director of the Ad Club of Connecticut. And every time I talked to someone in the startup world, I felt like it was very exciting. I wanted to be part of it. So in the beginning, I started just consulting for early stage startups. I started working with Jet Black, which was the first startup incubated by Walmart. I was content director at Hey Mama for about a year. Hey Mama is a platform for working moms, like a social network for working moms. In, in my experience in the startup world, I started noticing a pattern, which was that funny content drove towards larger business goals waitlist growth, revenue, you, you could make a bigger impact with funny content than I felt people realized. And at the same time, I knew a lot of comedians who needed a little extra money, like subletting in Bushwick, an extra grand in a month could go a long way. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea to start matching brands and comedians. I and mean, we were doing it in this really ad hoc way. And I'd been thinking about s- scaling that into a platform. So I was fully into that, was like super happy doing it. 
I had this idea of drawing attention to this concept by producing a show at Art Basel. And I was just so personally convinced that Art Basel needed a comedy show to really help people see comedians in, in a different way because they're, they're artists. So I was doing that and really excited about it and went to this morning event that used to happen in the East Village every Friday morning called mm-hmm. Founders Friday. And it helped me stay motivated, talk to other people who were early or concept, con- I can't speak this morning, conceptual stage, keep each other inspired. And this guy stood up and said, I'm starting a zero waste version of Seamless. There's a give and an ask section at the end. I mean, his ask was that he needed marketing help. I said, okay, I'm going to go talk to this guy. We could create some cool content for him. We decided to get coffee a few days later. So we met on Friday morning and had coffee on Monday morning. And by the time I showed up for coffee, I was like, I'm going to take my, I'm scaling this weird little agency into a startup hat off and just talk human to human. Uh, I think I said that going into the go. Lord, I think you're giving me too much credit for what my ask was. My ask was, I stood up at the founders meeting and I was like, listen, I built this platform. It was, I think that was, I had launched it or I was about to launch it like in two weeks. You were about to. And yeah. I was like, I don't even know how to use Instagram. I was like, I need someone could just do anything for me because I can barely use the internet. Now I'm not, I'm not like a technophobe. Obviously like I run a tech business. I just don't know how people like speak on Facebook or Instagram. I'm just like not plugged into like certain basic modes of communication that like uh-huh. other humans do. So the ask was like, yeah, I, I think this was my word, Lauren. I was like, I'm asking like someone at minimum to run my Instagram account and like at maximum to be the CMO. Sort of anything in that range, I would accept. I think that was what I said. Like totally. Yeah, I think that to be that was total dame. more more of your um, yeah, the longer version of your ask. <laughs> but I was like, this is really interesting, and something I like. At first, I was like, this is something interesting. I just want to know this guy and help out a little bit. But by the time we had coffee, I was like, I want to be doing this all the time. Like wow. at the time, I thought I could scale my abstract idea that I was doing this art Basel show around and we were having fun and we were making some money and making some other people money but scaling that into a real startup like a truly scalable startup was the thing I was really struggling with I just sit in front of my business plan and say like how can I really make that work but I thought I could do that and grow deliver zero it's full potential at the same time But then um, something happened, probably around when I actually went down to Miami. I remember the entire time I was in Miami, I just wanted to be with Adam and our other co-founder, Byron, back in New York. Byron joined a couple weeks after me. The communication, the the good chemistry on our team that existed from the jump with the three of us was incredible. I just want to be like talking about like these business problems and these uh, tech challenges that would seem boring in comparison to being on a beach and like uh-huh. hanging out with uh, my, my funniest friends. And that, but that was where I wanted to be. And I, I started realizing that's where my head was at. Wow. And then it was, I guess I consciously made the decision at, at some point, it just felt inevitable that I'd have to choose one. And mm-hmm. 
Deliver Zero was just growing in such a way and gaining interest in such a way that there's it, it just draws you in. It happened with me and I can see it happen with our customers. Uh-huh. Like, so the takeaway from the story is if you're ever at this critical junction in your life and you're trying to decide between the red or blue pill, the, the, the left or right door, go to the beach and see where, <laughs> where your heart <laughs> is naturally pulled to. Um, wait, before we skip over this though, I, I want to double click into that very first mile because in, in Adam's case, I'd imagine bringing a V1 or an MVP to life required the help of some other people as well. So at that time, before when you're standing up to make the ask of the Instagram to CMO spectrum, had you have A, settled on what the model would be? Like you knew exactly how we were going to power the platform. Had you hired contractors to build this? Like when you stood up, what have you done up until that point? And how did you find the, the puzzle pieces to actually get to that point? Yeah, that point, it took a lot of work to get to that point. So that point, it's funny, when I launched, people said, oh, this is, this is pretty good for an MVP, but it was so much an MVP. The whole thing was duct taped together. So at that point, I had already begged eight restaurants in one neighborhood to do Deliver Zero, which was hard. I'd sold them on the idea. I had figured out the reusable packaging that we were going to use in our system. So I figured out the hardware component. And I had, with the help of a contractor, I had built an MVP. I had built a website that could sell food on it, that could take those food orders and zap them to a tablet at a restaurant that was running a Deliver Zero app. So the basics were there. At that point, I had built something that could take someone's credit card and take their money and zap a, an order to a restaurant and the restaurant could make the food and they could use that app to tell me how they were packaging the food because part of this whole thing is we have to take, keep track of the Deliver Zero containers, the Deliver Zero boxes. So the very, very, very basics were there as we would discover over the next months and year, that MVP, which is somewhere in the tiny core of our product still, that MVP was really very minimally viable. But it worked. I mean, it worked. It was good enough to, to prove to us that we had incredible product market fit right from the get-go. Even some of our customers, like our very first customer still orders from us regularly. So it was those like really early customers who I don't think they even realize how much they did for us just in terms of showing us like to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren, before we kicked off this interview, we were off air. I don't know if we were still on Zencaster, but I was telling Adam that a few years back, I also had my food slash restaurant founder had on I was running a mobile ordering startup back in mass and I I only note that because I now I appreciate the masochism it requires to participate (laughs) in this industry Um, but I, I want to just get a better understanding of the different puzzle pieces that make up deliver zero because if you look at some of the incumbents in the space today 
they own a single piece, which is just the connective tissue between supply and demand. In Deliver Zero's case, there are a, a couple other things that y'all are required to take on to serve the value proposition, which is zero waste in the world of delivery. If you don't mind just explaining to myself and the listeners the three puzzle pieces that you just outlined, Adam, and then how you settled on each of those things. How did the hardware piece come to life? How does the business model work? But if you don't mind, just peel a layer of the onion back and explain how exactly the business works and the model that enables both sides of the marketplace to thrive. Yeah. So a a lot of people have tried to do reusables in takeout in a number of different ways. And most models involve something like a subscription. Like you, the consumer, are allowed to have a certain number of reusable boxes checked out at any one time. So if you have a single subscription, you can have one reusable box checked out at a time. If you have a double, you can have two. If you have a triple, you can have three boxes checked out at a time. Most models and reusables involve some kind of deposit, put some money down up front to get a box checked out. We rejected those models. We rejected them because they create friction for the consumer and they're too different from the typical takeout and delivery experience now. So what is the typical takeout and delivery experience now? It is the seamless model. You go online, you find a restaurant, you order food, you get your food. You don't really think about it. So everything we do is designed to mimic that experience to the extent possible for the restaurant, for the consumer. So for the restaurant, it's very similar. You're sitting there in your restaurant and you receive an order. The twist is you you package the food in the reusable packaging. For the consumer, it's just, it's the same thing. You find a restaurant, you order food. The twist is it shows up in reusable packaging. Now, we make money the same way that the other platforms make money, which is we take a percentage, we take a commission from the food sale. The containers, which are very expensive, we supply to the restaurants for free. We technically own the containers. So a container that's in a restaurant kitchen, we own. A container that's in your house, we own. If you don't return the container, if the consumer doesn't return the container within six weeks, we say you bought it, we charge you for the container. But the containers are just like the, the network, sort of the lubricant that allows, that allows the gears to turn in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the model, the business model, is essentially the same as Grubhub, Caviar, whatever, which is it's just a marketplace where food is ordered, but we built a marketplace on top of this network of containers. And the way we police the network, the way we make sure containers are returned is we charge a fee if those containers are not returned within six weeks. Um, so, go ahead, Peter. I, I just want to, first of all, I, I love the realization around what needs to be true for the model to succeed. Here, I, we, I live right here in Manhattan as well. And there's a, a slew of concepts that try to either A, put the burden of reuse and walking back that container to where they purchased it prior. And I I like the the direction of the model, but um, again, what we've seen historically is the more frustration and effort you put on the customer, the harder it is to 
to get product market fit and scale the model. But in this case, it's let's keep the model exactly the same. If you reorder from the restaurant, just give them back the other reusable container that you used. So you still keep the convenience factor constant. Oh yeah. And I'll speak to that. Oh, go ahead, Lauren. Oh yeah. I just want to make it really clear that the customer can return the container to any restaurant we work with. So they can return it to the delivery person or they can return it in person, but it can be to any restaurant we work with, not the same one they ordered from. Oh, wow. Um, So you can order Thai food, one night sushi, another night, same containers can go to both restaurants. Wait, this is, all right, that's super, I I love that, A. (laughs) You can return, so that's, yeah, I, I guess I should have led with that value proposition, which is like, you order food, you have these reusable containers, what do you do with them? Uh-huh. The most common way to return the containers is you order food from any restaurant. And the next time you get food, there's a delivery person at your door. You hand that delivery person from whatever restaurant, you hand them back your old containers. Uh-huh. So the containers circulate freely among all the restaurants and all the delivery carriers. So you as a consumer, you don't have to worry about returning your containers to X restaurant or Y restaurant. You just hand them back to any delivery zero, deliver zero courier and they're out of your hands. Or, you, or if you don't want to order again, you can walk back to any Deliver Zero restaurant and they're out of your hands. So the return process is as frictionless as can be because mm-hmm. the return process usually just happens right at your doorstep on your next order. So this is where I think the real magic and the challenge happens in the Deliver Zero model is the couriers. So the people who connect the dots between the merchants and the end customers. And then B, the supply of these containers. Part of the model has probably the set of assumptions around return rate, et cetera. And so when it comes to the couriers, are these independently trained couriers that are 1099 under Deliver Zero? Do you work with a service that powers it? That to me, because today, if you're a typical seamless or you know, Uber Eats courier, you drop off the, the product and you leave. So now there is some additional education and ask of the courier. So maybe distill down how the, these awesome couriers work inside of the Deliver Zero ecosystem. Great, great question. Because now we're in the weeds of how this stuff works. So just to back up, when you're sitting at home and you order from Grubhub, your food shows up uh, at your door. Who's delivering that food? It could be a courier who's employed by the restaurant, or it could be a 1099 contractor who Grubhub has found and has offered a gig to come to your door and deliver the food. As a consumer actually sitting in your house, you could guess which it is, but it's basically opaque to you. Because in Grubhub, all the restaurants, whether they're self-delivery restaurants or they're Grubhub delivery restaurants, they're all mixed together. You actually can't really tell as a consumer. And there are certain, there are certain tells, there are certain giveaways, but because it really doesn't matter to you as a consumer. But suffice to say, the, the marketplace, Grubhub mixes up all those restaurants. So some of the restaurants are self-delivery and some of them are outside delivery or Grubhub supply delivery. And depending on where you live in the country, the balance could shift. In New York City, we tend to have more restaurants that do self-delivery we tend to have more restaurants that have their in-house fleets, their in-house couriers. Mm. 
So when Deliver Zero launched, and until relatively recently, we only worked with restaurants that had their own in-house delivery couriers. And that's, that's for business building reasons, for operational reasons. It's hard to solve 10 problems at once. One, the, the, the problem that we didn't want to solve on day one was courier getting into the courier business. The problem that we wanted to solve on day one was this whole crazy inventory tracking system that is the, the backbone of Deliver Zero. So for the longest time, Deliver Zero only worked with restaurants that had their own couriers. So that makes the problem um, of, of training the couriers a little bit easier. We go into the restaurant and we say, listen, you're a delivery guy. You're going to dispatch your delivery guy. He's going to go to the customer. And when he's at the customer's door, he's going to obviously deliver the food. And he's also going to take back to your restaurant whatever the customer gives him. So he might leave the restaurant with five Deliver Zero containers. And he might return to the restaurant with, say, three Deliver Zero containers that he retrieved, he retrieved from the customer. So th that's the easiest use case when a restaurant has its own delivery guy. Because that delivery guy just has to be trained to obviously leave the restaurant with the food and come back possibly empty-handed or possibly with some, something that the, that the customer is giving him. Of course, the delivery guy, the restaurant, they have no idea where those containers came from. They, those containers could have originated at that very restaurant. The, the customer may have gotten those containers yesterday from that restaurant. They may have gotten them from a different restaurant three weeks ago. For the purposes of training the courier and training the restaurant, it doesn't matter. The, the courier just brings back those containers to the restaurant and records whatever the courier brings back. So that's the first case, the easy case when the restaurant has, has its own couriers. Relatively recently in Deliver Zero, we have now, we have our own, as it were, our own couriers who are not affiliated with any particular restaurant. For those couriers, the, the procedure, and we're sort of, I guess we're still at 1.0 of this. The procedure is courier picks up some food, delivers it to a restaurant, Oh, excuse me, delivers it to a customer. And then the customer at that point often will hand that courier containers back. And now we have this additional leg of the trip, which as you said, Peter, doesn't exist for a regular Grubhub courier. Usually the gig is over now for the Grubhub courier. In our case, the gig is not over because our courier now has these containers. He's not affiliated with any restaurants. So what does he do with them? The answer is he holds them. He sits on them. He waits mm -hmm. till his next ping. On his next ping, he's told, hey, courier, you're going to a new Deliver Zero restaurant to get some more food. Now he goes to a new restaurant and he drops off the containers that he just retrieved to that new restaurant. So he started at the sushi place. He went to the customer, gave him some containers, and now he's got a new ping, which is, hey, go to the Mexican joint, go get some burritos. He drops off the containers, which he just retrieved. He drops them off at the Mexican place. So he doesn't have an additional trip to make. He just sits on the containers, which are light and stackable. And they don't take up very much space. He sits on the containers till he gets the next ping, till he goes to the next restaurant and he drops them at the next restaurant. Wow. That was a mouthful. I know. No, but, it, no, no. That's it, sort of in the weeds and how it works. That's super helpful. And then after the containers get brought back to the restaurant, do y'all then take on the burden of cleaning the, the containers? Do some restaurants agree to help shouldering this piece of the puzzle. How, how do you then reintegrate the containers back into the marketplace? The restaurants all do their own cleaning and sanitizing of the containers. 
So anytime a container comes into a restaurant, the restaurant then treats that container like a dish, like a ceramic plate or like a metal fork. And that's what the containers are built for. They bear a certification. They're, they're commercial dishwasher safe. They're very sturdy and durable. So anytime a container enters a restaurant, the restaurant says, okay, we, it looks clean, typically. Our, our customer is expected to at least give them a rinse. And they usually look like 100% clean, but the restaurant has to wash it. The New York City Health Code actually governs the reuse of takeout containers. Basically, the law is containers have to be of a certain quality, a certain a food grade, they have to be really durable. And also the restaurant, anytime a container leaves a restaurant, the restaurant has to clean it and sanitize it as it would a regular dish. In some sense, that limits the kind of restaurants we can work with. A restaurant that has zero dishwashing capacity, like a, a true, a true pure takeout place that has washes zero dishes that only is in the disposables business, probably isn't a good, is not a good fit for Deliver Zero. We, we typically only work with restaurants that, that, that wash dishes. And we just piggyback on their existing dishwashing operation because they're in the business of washing dishes anyway. And they're just throwing their Deliver Zero containers into the mix and washing them with their regular dishes. Brilliant. What I want to better understand is the state of Deliver Zero today, the current ecosystem, and broader plans over the next year, 24 months. How many restaurants are y'all currently working today? What areas? And what's the game plan over the next 12 months? Oh, good question. So we had live, I think like today, like I want to say 94, 95 restaurants on the platform in most of Manhattan and in a lot of, I would say, if you're a New Yorker, uh, like I would say Western Brooklyn. So that's basically from Park Slope up to Greenpoint. That's our footprint. We probably have 20 more restaurants that we're going to be adding in the next two weeks. So it's going pretty quick, growing pretty quick in, in New York City. Over the next 12 months, the plan operationally is really to focus on New York and take over New York. I think that our footprint is pretty good, but we could go deeper. We could have a broader offering with more restaurants. I think with three or 400 restaurants in New York City, we could have a pretty good offering that covers a lot of the city. Maybe 400 is the magic number. That's the next 12 months. Beyond that, we're probably good. After 12 months, we could probably go to another U.S. market and another U.S. urban market. Unlike Grubhub, there are some interesting operational complexities around our business. So I don't want to say that we could go into 12 cities in one fell swoop. I think it's more conquer one city at a time, or maybe we could do two more cities at once. And in parallel to this whole thing, I should also say, we have a very cool partnership that we're doing with some folks in Amsterdam who are going to be launching Deliver Zero service in Amsterdam. Wow. Why Amsterdam? A couple of reasons. First of all, it's a very cool city, very progressive, very into these sort of values, but it's a good fit. And second of all, we just got lucky. The partners we're going to be working with are, have deep experience in the reusable space, the restaurant-facing reusable space. They do, they're called Ozarka. They really have had a, a B2B solution for reusables for a long time. And they were looking for a B2C thing to do in the reusable space. And <laughs> mm-hmm. they were like, 
basically they found liver zero and they said, oh, this is, this is perfect. This is what we wanted to invent anyway. Let's just ask the liver zero if they'll just license our t- the tech to us. And we're like, sure, you can have our tech, you can have our brand name, launch Deliver Zero. So they're going to be launching DeliverZero.nl.netherlands in, I don't know, like a month or something. So in parallel to our operation, they're going to be running Deliver Zero in Amsterdam. You know, and that's not saying that me and Lauren are going to be managing on a day-to-day basis other than giving them brand support and tech support. They're going to be running that show there. But it's just cool to have a little bit of representation in Europe. Mm-hmm. That, that sparks a, a broader question around scaling the model, which I'll revisit in, in a question or two. But Lauren, I wanted to, to take a peep under the broader strategy on acquisition. I think conventionally in the world of food delivery, it has been a total bloodbath. $20 free, all these in, crazy incentives to funnel customer acquisition on both sides of the marketplace. As a scrappy startup, Clearly, we, you know, y'all don't have the advantage of pouring millions upon millions of dollars into these types of campaigns. So I, I want to hear from you in the driver's seat, what are some of the kind of compelling guerrilla tactics or storytelling approaches that have worked really well for y'all in both acquiring merchants and acquiring new consumers? Yeah, so I, I can speak to the, the consumer side and the way we position ourselves there. So I can personally speak to the experience as a customer too. Of every time uh-huh. I open my Gmail inbox right now, Uber Eats is offering me a $30 off my first order promo code in my Gmail inbox, which as a marketer, I know they're paying a lot just to offer me $30. Mm-hmm. The other delivery platforms are, are offering comparable codes right now. for that speaks to the bloodbath you were talking about $30 off your first order. Yeah. We can afford customer acquisition costs that include a $30 off your first order promo code. I'm not going to get too (laughs) into the weeds, but we want our overall costs to be $30 or lower. Not yeah, It's crazy. So we're bringing a differentiator into a market that is totally devoid of differentiators, a really competitive space. And there are ways that is challenging. Like if we're going to go head to head with those companies on Google ads, they can outspend us. And there's no way of Google ads algorithm knowing that we're actually way cooler. There's not a a filter for that. (laughs) So from the beginning, in the beginning, we did zero marketing budget just I got on Instagram and built a following there. It's not like we have a mega macro influencer following, but it's a really easy way to connect with people from sitting in my own home, sitting in coffee shops around Williamsburg. I was able to build a small audience that was really excited about what we were building in the very beginning. Um, And that's how we posted in Park Slope Parents, which I'd say that was one of the big wins early on. Adam and kind of me, but really mostly Adam got out into the farmer's market in Park Slope and talked to people. And yeah, just sitting on Instagram, plugging away, like DMing people, commenting on posts from around the neighborhood, because we were targeting a really niche audience in the beginning. We launched with the Park Slope audience only. So it was all about like commenting on Instagram posts that be relevant specifically to that group um, and building a following there. 
Another thing we did is get memes trending. Like I was saying earlier, I'm a huge believer in the power of comedy for brands. I think there's also a power to educate that comes with a, a good meme or a good, yeah, good funny content can also be more educational than content that intends to educate sometimes. Like just purely educational content doesn't perform as well. So in the beginning, our strategy was very grassroots and very meme driven as crazy as that sounds. We were able to get a good number of posts trending really early on. Like got posts to go um, viral on, on bigger hashtags pretty early. So that helped and that helped us get some early press. So we launched in November of last year, almost exactly a year ago now. And by January, we were covered by uh, the World Economic Forum, Green Matters. And then from there, like NBC started picking us up and local publications in Brooklyn, uh, like Brooklyner and Brooklyn based. Wow. And then we started spending some money on Facebook ads, just getting our feet wet and understanding what, what our customer acquisition looks like there. Now, a year later, our, mar- our marketing budget is bigger than it was. It's not like we have Uber marketing budgets, but we have budget. We do. It's so tiny, Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean we, listen, but, I, the other but night, we do. Oh, sorry. Night, we had, yeah, speaking of guerrilla stuff. So we, what, it was, we had a bad night. We had a bad night a few, like a, oh, 10 days ago or something. It was 70 uh, degrees off. We had, we had a bad night of delivery. I was like, oh my God, why aren't we getting more orders tonight? This was like 10 days ago. And... No, it was, I know what it was. It was a Friday night, which is usually a good night. Friday night, and it was nice out. It was for a the Friday first night. time in a while. And I was like, I can't believe we had such a bad night. You know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the farmer's market in Union Square tomorrow with a bunch of postcards, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get out there on the street, which is something I hadn't done in, I don't know, like nine months or something. I don't usually do that. But like, uh-huh. I do weird, scrappy things all the time. I just hadn't done that particular scrappy thing. So it was because I know it was a Friday night because that next day, Biden won. It was a Saturday. And I was standing there in Union Square, like everyone was like celebrating. And I'm sitting there like handing out postcards, like trying to get people to use my zero waste delivery platform. It was actually a really good audience for us. (laughs) (laughs) I I mentioned this not because this is a great, this is a particularly (laughs) great tactic. But Peter, you should know that we we're still super scrappy and super grown. Like we still do, you know, everything it takes to get out there on the street. This is a particularly foolish thing to do, actually, because no one wanted to talk to me as Joe Biden was winning the election. And people were like honking and screaming and like dancing in Union Square. And I'm sitting there trying to sell my product, even though it's a wonderful progressive product. People were like, I'm not in the, I'm not in the mood for commerce, Bob. Uh-huh. I say it to illustrate, like we're still, we still do whatever it takes. Also, right? the way we go about spending, like the teeny tiny compared to our competitors budget that we have now isn't, okay, cool. We're going to put X amount towards this month. It's we're like Adam and I talk about Facebook ads more than um, most people talk to any person about anything. (laughs) Like we're always thinking through, we're not just like hiring agencies and being like, oh, go off and do this. Like whenever we hire like anyone to do even a small project for us, it would be like, that would be a huge deal to us. And it would be Mm -hmm. a, a really carefully made decision. And any money we're spending on say, Facebook ads, um, Google ads, which we're just dipping our toes in the water is teeny tiny. And we're, we're thinking about it 
really hard. It's, it, it's something I, I take so, so much to heart. One, I think our customer acquisition costs should be low because our concept is amazing. It's exactly what people are using already, except we're good for the environment. Mm-hmm. No extra lift for the consumer other than say handing a couple of containers back to a delivery person. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, our, our cost should be low. And then um, I'm also really competitive with myself. Um, so that's another piece of it. <laughs> so I, I don't want to see them get too high because they shouldn't be. And uh, it's a constant game I'm playing with myself to acquire more customers in the scrappiest way as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still do. like We do better when we're consistently posting uh, really high quality content on social. Like organic customers are coming to us through organic word of mouth and organic um, social posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another piece I feel like we haven't gotten into. Our customers have been really amazing. They tell their friends about us. We have a referral program to encourage that. And sometimes they use the referral program, but very often they also tell their friends about us without even taking advantage of the fact that they could get 10 bucks for doing that. They post about us on social every night. There's a bunch of story tags to regram. People don't just post about our competitors like that. Nobody gets mm-hmm. a seamless order and it's look at my seamless <laughs> order. <laughs> like, look at this burrito in inside garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what people do with us every night. That's the nice thing about I think the the beauty of something that y'all can lean into. You look at what happened with the tidal wave that was scooters. Obviously, the, the model itself is super challenging, but there's no denying that riding a scooter is super fun. And not only are you going to share it if you're able to do but they're, they're literally like walking billboards. And so it has this like really nice baked in virality inside on top of the physical product. Same thing with the Liver Zero. What I actually want to do is zoom out for a second across the kind of broader food delivery ecosystem, things that you're bullish or bearish on. Uh, I saw, I don't know if it was someone recapping an S1 or talking about some of the Uber Eats metrics, but someone posted earlier this week, and I can't verify the, the truth in this, but that the average customer of Uber Eats only orders from three restaurants and change, like three and 0.4 restaurants. And it begs the, the broader question, which is delivery's role and the players that enable delivery inside of the broader food industry. And so I wanted to pass a torch to y'all and see now that you guys work with a bunch of merchants and consumers and are able to see how people engage, what is your take on the future of delivery? Are we going to see more marketplaces? Are we going to see more restaurants pursuing direct-to-consumer? What are both of yours kind of broader takes, bullish or bearish takes on food delivery going forward? Wow. I, I think food delivery is here to stay. Consumers like food delivery. I guess the deeper question is who is going to enable it? Is it going to be third-party platforms or is it going to be restaurants doing self-delivery? Mm-hmm. Or there's a middle ground, which is actually, I've heard from a lot of restaurant operators in the city, operators are interested in doing little co-ops or little collectives 
where maybe five restaurants on a block will share a fleet of delivery guys, which is a, a very cool idea, a middle ground idea. Mm-hmm. I, and when Grubhub, when Seamless started, Seamless is the original, when they started, th- there was no way for a restaurant to conveniently post its own menu online and receive orders. Now, you, know, you had to use one of the third-party apps. You had to use Grubhub or Seamless or DoorDash. Now there are lots of SaaS companies like Chow Now is probably the biggest one, Bento Box is another, that allow a restaurant to simply conveniently and quite beautifully post their menu online, receive orders in-house, the orders can get zapped straight to the POS. So the restaurants have lots of really nice tech options to go around the delivery platforms. Now, they still have the big problem of how to dispatch a delivery driver, but, but they have really good options for receiving orders from the internet and, and, and having them print out in-house so they can then make the food. So that's a big challenge to the delivery platforms. And I think that those innovations, those SaaS products like Chow Now and, and Get Bento Box are, are going to harm the delivery platforms because a big piece of their offering, the, the, the tech is now widely available to restaurants and the yeah. restaurants can do it on their own. So I think that there's going to be some chipping away at restaurants buying into Grubhub provided, delivery Grubhub provided marketplaces, particularly in denser environments like New York City, where we already see, as I said earlier, we already see a lot of restaurants doing self-delivery. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I, we, we at Deliver Zero hope and pray that day comes. We want restaurants to be doing their own delivery. Mm-hmm. I think it makes more sense for them economically. They can manage it better. They can do a better job than contracting out the delivery. And it doesn't actually affect our business model. Our business model is not that we're in the delivery business and we're providing you a network of delivery drivers, which we, we're doing now only because we have to, because there are lots of restaurants that don't have their delivery drivers. Our, our business model is we're providing a network of reusable containers mm-hmm. that are shared among the restaurants. So, I would love it if there was a sea change in the industry and more restaurants went to self-delivery because I don't, frankly don't want to be in the delivery business. I want to be in the reusable container network inventory management business. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is going to be a change away from outside platform-directed delivery toward in-house self-service delivery, and, I, and we look forward to that. And then there's and also- if, the, uh, if that happens, we're okay because we're- Customers aren't coming to us to browse a number of restaurants like they might be on other platforms. They're coming to us because this network of reusable containers that lives across restaurants and one single restaurant uh, simply can't create the same value proposition on their own. I'll also say something. I'll give you a little secret, Peter. So I mentioned that some restaurants, I've talked to multiple restaurant operators who say we want to start our own co-op where we, we, we do the delivery. We share the delivery on the block. And I was like, that is such a cool idea. And we at Deliver Zero, for a few restaurants on the platform, actually do that. So we have a few restaurants on our platform where one restaurant has a delivery service and a couple of other restaurants on the block don't have delivery services. So rather than dispatching our delivery drivers to take care of those restaurants, we go to restaurant A the restaurant that has its own in-house fleet. And we say, hey, listen, let's keep the money in the family. 
why don't you handle the deliveries for the other couple restaurants on this block? You'll make a delivery commission. Like you'll be like Grubhub, right? You'll make a commission. You'll get a cut of the delivery and you'll handle deliveries. So actually there's a secret business inside of Deliver Zero where we're running a couple of these little co-ops. The consumer can't see it. They don't know that. But we're running these little co-ops to keep the money in the family, as it were. Mm. So the restaurant handles delivery for other restaurants on its block. And this is independent. We also have the own thing where we dispatch separate delivery carriers. But wow. so we also have this sort of secret product behind the scenes where we're sharing delivery drivers among restaurants. And I think you know, that's another cool thing that we're developing to take advantage of the fact that there, are, there is delivery capacity within these neighborhoods within New York City. That is brilliant. That is really smart. And this is the second time I'm going to give my dad a shout out, by the way, because <laughs> that's my dad's idea. Wow. I was like, it's crazy. And my dad was like, oh, just, just ask, ask Joe to send his delivery guy. And I was like, uh-huh. that's crazy. How am I going to do that, dad? And I was like, wait a minute. That's actually I a good have, idea. I have, the, I have the tech. I have a tablet in Joe's restaurant. I could just send him a ping that says, hey, Joe, go to Jane's restaurant. Send your delivery guy to Jane's restaurant, which is like literally 200 feet away, and make, do the delivery for Jane. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a tablet that lives in Joe's restaurant. I can easily send that instruction to, Jane, to Joe, give Joe a sizable commission to do it. He, he makes a big cut. And Jane wins because someone is doing her delivery. Joe wins because the money is, he gets the money. I don't need to be in the delivery business. It's mm-hmm. great to keep, just keep it in the family. That's amazing. Uh, I want to ask, uh, you know, one more question before we part ways. I typically end each interview with a question about y'all's idea graveyard. But as a startup that's this early in the journey, my my hunch is that y'all are pouring kind of your heart and soul into this project. And there's really no, there's no extra mind share to tinker on other ideas. So I want to lead off with a question about impact potential. When in five, seven, 10 years, all the stars align, what is the kind of moonshot impact potential for a company like Delivery Zero? Oh, it's not a moonshot. We believe it. We believe this is the future of all takeout and delivery. Right now, it's early adopters, it's people who care about the environment. Actually, it's even shifting from that. It's not even just the environmental geeks. It's very like seamless customers. Like in customer surveys, we, we see that people who consistently order from other platforms order through us. It started off with people who were like, wow, I used to not be able to order takeout and delivery because I aspire to be zero or very low waste. And now I can, where it's really shifted now to the point that we're getting regular delivery customers. And that's, think, that's where we see ourselves. In a couple of years, I think it's going to be basically all delivery and takeout, maybe two or three years in New York City. All delivery and takeout will be in reusables. I think that would be the expectation. And then, how do, and then we, you know, the, the next level of that is every, you know, every single disposable that you might use, the coffee cup from from the guy at the food cart on the corner, the guy making an egg and cheese at the deli, how do we get those in reusables? That's, maybe that's maybe five years out. And that's a more complicated model. That, that in, we would probably have to involve some kind of service where you know, throughout the city there are big dishwashing facilities that can collect those cups 
wash them and distribute them to every single vendor, every single merchant, whether it's a, a, a proper restaurant or not, to give maximal coverage so every single disposable is no longer disposable, is reusable. And that will have to have municipal buy-in where there are drop spots in the city where you can deposit your, you know, your dirty cups or your used clamshells or whatever they are mm-hmm. to really get maximal coverage to make single-use completely a thing of the past. And that's maybe five or 10 years out to make mm-hmm. every single thing reusable. And, you know, that goes to another point. Deliver Zero, I almost view Deliver Zero as like a public utility. It's you plug it, you plug your elect- electricity into the wall and you get electricity that is shared by, from a collective grid or your water is from a you know, collective pipe network. That's what Deliver Zero is. It's a small network now. It's 100 restaurants. It's, it's a collective network of reusable containers that are shared among all the restaurants and all the customers. It's just a matter of making that network bigger and having it cover more and more of New York City now, but other municipalities in the future. And really getting the customer to see it as a public good so that they can just participate in it for any kind of single use need would be displaced by this, this public network by these reusables. That's a moonshot picture of where this will go in 10 years. Wow. All right, y'all. I want to roll out the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that either of you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Jeez. Um, I'll tell you where you can, yeah. So you can join our email list on our website. Follow us on Instagram at deliver zero. The O at the end is just a a zero, but it'll come up when you search for deliver zero. You won't have to type the whole thing in. And DM us, email us, message us on Facebook, and share your thoughts, share your ideas. If, If you're listening to this in California, Say Deliver Zero should really come here. You'll be joining a, a chorus of many from California who have told us this. Um, but it is really helpful for us to know where there's demand because, like Adam said, we want to be the mainstream way of ordering delivery and perhaps fulfilling other needs. And we're just getting started. And if so you're join in New us York, on our mission. If you're in New York, obviously order from us, but tell your local restaurants. Restaurants understand this. They understand it in two ways. One is a cynical way. They know that their consumers are environmentally friendly. They know that their consumers have been saying, don't give me any extra forks or knives or napkins. They've been seeing that on takeout orders for years now. So they get it. But they also get it as just you and I get it, as regular people. Like they understand that the environmental problem that they're contributing to. Restaurants are in business, but they're also people. Like they understand that this is an environmental problem that they're contributing to. And many of them, I'd say most of them, truly want to solve it. Telling them about Deliver Zero helps us. It helps grow. It helps grow the network because lots of restaurants are looking for a solution like this because they know the problem intimately and they want to solve it. Mm -hmm. Spread the word to your friends. We want to get some takeout, but also spread the word to your your local restaurants who are hopefully also your friends Mm -hmm. to let them know that our solution exists. Mm-hmm. Adam and Lauren, uh, first, sincerest congrats on both of your early success. Listeners, we have a, a pretty significant New York-based population. So seriously, check out Deliver Zero. I'm so excited to try it out here. And 
Again, Lauren and Adam, thank you so much for your time bearing with us <laughs> during the early technical difficulties. Really do appreciate it and wish you nothing but you know great success over the next years to come. Thank you, Peter. What a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.